came across a misnomer. I don't know if I came across it, but it, I realized that this phrase is a misnomer if I've ever heard of one, a no-fault divorce. Seriously? <laughs> How many believe that one? I looked it up and found this definition. A no-fault divorce is when one of the parties to a marriage files for a divorce based on their inability to get along. You do not need reasons for a divorce. Some states call this irreconcilable differences, while other states call this the irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. The definition goes on to say they both mean the marriage is broken and cannot be fixed. And I looked that up, and they say that started in California, big surprise, uh, back in 1970. But interestingly enough, this actually started over 2,000 years ago, as we find in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, starting with verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? No fault divorce. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept that word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, last week we began tackling the subject of marriage and divorce as it comes up in our series through Matthew. Uh, and this is a topic that the Pharisees brought up to Jesus, and they brought it up to him for the purpose of tripping Jesus up and trying to discredit him in the eyes of the crowds that were still following Jesus. So knowing what the common thinking on divorcing your wife was, they asked Jesus, and they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? What say you, teacher? Give us an answer to that one. But Jesus, as brilliant as he always was, basically said, has nothing to do with what I say, it's what God says. And he took him back to God. He took him back to the beginning. Gentlemen, let's go back to Genesis, he said, and see what God says about marriage. And he reminds them that God created this beautiful thing between one man and one woman, bonded for life to become one flesh, to fulfill one another throughout life. And therefore, he said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Now, you know, just a side note here. The Jewish word for marriage is kedushin. Kedushin means sanctification, consecration. It means to be set apart. Amazing word. It was used to describe something that was devoted to God, something dedicated to God as His exclusive personal possession. Anything that would be totally given to God, totally surrendered to God, would be Kedushin. And it was a great word for marriage because it was a total commitment of one person to another, and it was a covenant promise to God. I think oftentimes people forget that. We are not only promising making these vows to one another when we stand up there in front of uh, the wedding the wedding group, but we're making vows, we're making a commitment to God. But at the fall, fall of man, back in Genesis, sin came into the world, and even in the book of Genesis and beyond, we start seeing divorce. It's there. But God's original intention never changes. You go to the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, and we read there, God says, I hate divorce. God never intended for divorce in Genesis, and He still hated it in that last book of the Old Testament. It didn't change. Marriage, then, is God's design. We talked about that last week. It's God's best. It's the grace of life, as Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's what God has given to men and women in the relationship of all relationships. After he takes the Pharisees and talks to the Pharisees about this, they're not going to be deterred. And the Pharisees have another question up their sleeve. Why then, they said, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And I can imagine they're standing there with a smug smile on their face and thinking, gotcha now. After all, Moses was God's spokesman. Moses is the author of the five books of the law, the Pentateuch. Moses is the man of God, the leader of Israel. They're referring to Scripture here when they point this out to Jesus. So they said, all right, if that's the way it is, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And it turns out that that's a very loaded question, very carefully crafted. You see, Moses never commanded that. It turns out they've taken Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and have paraphrased it to make it mean what they want it to mean. Folks, that's why it's so important to know your Scripture. The words that are used in Scripture are there precisely. They're not just a haphazard way of saying things. Satan tried, remember, Satan tried to twist the Scripture to tempt Jesus. The Pharisees are trying to twist Scripture to trip up Jesus. People still try to use Scripture to their benefit. we got horrible, godless politicians, some of them today, trying to bend Scripture. You've heard it on TV sometimes. They'll, they'll quote something and say, what? That's not what it means at all. But they're trying to use it for their benefit. Christians, for goodness sake, will try to pull out and twist Scripture to condone what they want to be doing. People do it all the time. You know, one of my favorite, uh, favorites of these is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, which is a command, men, okay, listen up carefully. This is a command that men should wear both belts and suspenders. 
It's true. Listen, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. What else can it mean, right? Well, in the same way, we find that Moses never commanded anybody to give a divorce certificate to anyone. The passage there referring to Deuteronomy chapter 4, the first four verses, let me read this for you. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes a wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. There is no command there. What this passage actually does is that it recognizes divorce. It's happening. It's going on. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It recognizes remarriage, and it's regulating some elements of remarriage. What happens is a man sends his wife away. He says, I don't want her. You know, gives her, writes her a certificate of divorce. She marries someone else, and that person also sends her away. And then she wants to come back to the original husband. And Moses said, "No, can't do that because she's defiled herself." That's all that passage is saying. There's no command here at all. God is simply acknowledging the existence of divorce. He's not approving divorce. He's not condoning divorce. He is certainly not commanding divorce. That would go directly against God's command about adultery, which we find in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. That's how serious God is about keeping the marriage pure and bonded. So the fact is, Deuteronomy chapter 24 doesn't authorize anything. It doesn't command anything in regards to divorce, like the Pharisees were trying to twist it. All it's actually saying is that there's no remarriage for somebody who should never have been divorced in the first place and gone to be with somebody else. That's the point of that passage. Now, that's why in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus replies to their question, Moses permitted. You see how he changed that word? Pharisees said, why did Moses command it? Jesus says, Moses permitted it. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, But it was not this way from the beginning. You see, God's law reflects the divine ideal. And that's why when you go through the Mosaic law, you're not going to find any grounds for divorce. The Old Testament doesn't record anywhere any authorization of divorce for any specific uh, uh, grounds. It never says in the Old Testament, well, if this happens, if your wife does this, your husband does this, then you can divorce. There's a lot of those laws that they give the law and they say, well, in this circumstances, this happens, in this circumstances, this happens. doesn't do that with divorce. It never says that adultery is a grounds for divorce. It doesn't say that because, um, it doesn't say that because under the tight application of God's law, adultery is not the grounds for divorce. It was a grounds for what? Widowhood. (laughs) It was the grounds for death. 
So he said to them in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Now, let me tell you what happened here. As we mentioned, the law of God doesn't provide specifically in black and white grounds for divorce. But it wasn't long after the law of God was given that it became very apparent to Moses and, of course, to God that the people weren't obeying the law. Oh, they had made a great profession of obedience. In fact, in Exodus chapter 24, they promised up and down that they'd obey God to the detail. They renewed their covenant with Him and they promised to be obedient. But it wasn't long after that that they became unfaithful and began to break the first commandment and they started worshiping other gods. And then from that, it just became easier and easier to start breaking the other commandments. And then they began violating the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, and even more significantly, the moral laws. They had just become a disobedient people. And part of the reason was because the leaders wouldn't carry out the execution of the law that God had attached to at least 35 transgressions of the law one of them being adultery. There's at least 35 things that the death penalty was there for. Now, there are some elements of the Old Testament law that God says require a death penalty, and that was, a, the, that was to preserve the righteousness and protect society from chaos and self-destruction. Look what's happening in our own country. We've got all sorts of laws on the books, don't we? But nobody seems to be following any of them, and our country is self-destructing. And it wasn't very long until the people were, were so disobedient at such a wide level that the leaders then began to become disobedient so that nobody was enforcing any, any of the penalties that were written in God's laws. Now, in his anger, in his wrath, God could have wiped almost everybody out. It was there. It was the law. But God, God is merciful. And God is gracious. Yes, even in the Old Testament. And so God didn't kill everybody who deserved to be killed. Boy, aren't you glad for that? God is merciful. Verse 8 again, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but that was never how it was supposed to be. It was, it was a concession to mercy, God's mercy. It was a concession to grace. It was God being compassionate upon His people. How is that possible? Isn't God of the Old Testament a God of wrath and a God of anger? I mean, there's all kinds of death penalties. There's death penalty for this and there's death penalty for that. You know, there's, there's a verse in the New Testament that's fascinating. Uh, you, you may have heard it before. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace, you have been saved. Love, mercy, Grace. Sometimes I think it's easier to assume that this love, mercy, and grace only came on the scene when Christ came on the scene or when Christ died for us. But God's character does not change. Mercy is one of His eternal attributes. It says God who is rich in mercy. He didn't just decide to become merciful when He sent Christ uh, into the world. 
He has always been full of mercy. And because of his mercy, he made us alive in Christ while we're still dead in our sins. And so God showed mercy to his people Israel, even in their disobedience. The hearts of his people grew hard, which means they became disobedient and started doing their own thing. And if, if God would have kept the letter of the law like we already mentioned, he could have wiped out his whole people group. So back to verse 8 again. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, because you were in a continual state of disobedience. That's the hardness of heart. But it was not this way from the beginning. It was never God's original intention. But he's saying you're such a hard-hearted people that God graciously and mercifully held back the execution the adulterer deserved. And in his place, Moses allowed divorce. Jesus then says in verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And that, that goes both ways. If anyone divorces her husband, except for sexual immorality, and marries another man, commits adultery. Again, God was amazingly gracious, and he didn't execute the adulterer. But what he did do was to give the innocent person the possibility of escaping the pollution of that adultery through divorce. After all, the innocent party would, would have been freed from the marriage if God had executed the guilty party anyway, right? Either way. The fact that God was merciful to the guilty party shouldn't then penalize the innocent. So God allowed for divorce, and he allowed it because of the hardness of hearts. That's an expression intended to define willful, rebellious sin. So what we have here is, is Jesus... God in flesh affirming grounds for divorce because it breaks the trusted bond of marriage and defiles it. I want, to, I want to take you back to the book of Jeremiah for a minute to look at a dramatic illustration of this between God and his people Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? Where did Jeremiah get that? Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. But look at the difference here. The end of verse 1, But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? Declares the Lord. In the Mosaic accommodation to the hardness of heart, in the Mosaic accommodation to sin, there was a recognition that divorce would occur. But if it occurred, it could only occur for adultery. And if it occurred in any other way, there was no coming back. So according to Deuteronomy chapter 4, there was no coming back, but God in His mercy says, I would take you back if you repent. That's God's mercy. See, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God loves us, and he wants to bring us back, but he hates it. But what happens here? Listen, starting in verse, uh, verse 2 of Deuteronomy 3. Look up to the barren heights and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? 
By the roadside, you, you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You've defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. You have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me? My father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. This is really interesting. He's, he, he, he says, you're, you're, you're a harlot. Talking to Israel, you're a prostitute. You've got all kinds of lovers. You didn't just commit adultery with one person. You've got adultery going on all over the place. He's talking about spiritual adultery. He's talking about Israel. God is the husband. Israel is the wife. You remember that Israel and Judah were divided uh, shortly after uh, King Solomon's time. And, and this is Israel that God is referring to Excuse me, in this passage. And Israel has just got all kinds of other gods going off uh, to this hill and that hill, to this idol and that idol. And that's spiritual adultery. That's being unfaithful to God. And God says, and now you want to come back to me? Seriously? They didn't understand how serious God was about his commands. You will have no other God before me. You will have no other lovers besides me. I think because of God's mercy and the fact that he didn't strike them dead immediately, they figured, ah, we'll take advantage of it. See, God's not going to punish us. We can do, go and do what we want. How, how often is that the mindset of, of us sometimes? I, I've had that mindset different times. Ah, he'll let me buy. I'll ask forgiveness on the other end. There in verse 5, they even said, My father, my friend from my youth... Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? They thought God's anger was going to just kind of die out. His anger was just going to calm down. He's not going to get be angry forever. He's not really going to punish us. He'll forgive us. Now, in the passage in Jeremiah, again, God is talking to the people, talking to the people of Judah about the people of Israel. The, uh, the, Judah was the southern kingdom. The people of Israel were the northern kingdom. And he's warning the people of Judah. And in verse 6, he says, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel, the northern kingdom, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me. Isn't that amazing? God was still thinking and hoping that she would still return after she had done all this. But she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. God is comparing Judah to Israel, and quite frankly, is finding Judah wanting. They didn't learn. Now, the northern king of Israel at the time of Jeremiah had already gone into captivity. The Assyrians had come in 722 B.C., and they had taken the northern kingdom captive, and they were gone forever. They never came back. What did God end up doing? Because of all her adulteries, verse 8 says there in Deuteronomy 3, I gave faithless Israel, what? Her certificate of divorce and sent her away. Wow. God's divorcing in the Old Testament. When the relationship of God, the husband of Israel in this analogy, was broken by Israel's continual, unrepentant idolatry, which is a form of spiritual adultery, God divorced Israel 
that northern kingdom. And so there's, there is a divine divorce here. God actually divorces Israel for the reason of adultery, and that corresponds to the only reason for divorce that Jesus is mentioning here in Matthew chapter 19. But lest we think that we can jump to divorce quickly, let me show you one more thing here in Jeremiah. The point here is that God divorced Israel, the northern kingdom, for spiritual adultery, and that's the righteous model for when a divorce is tolerable. However, God tolerated a lot. It wasn't just one time, ah, be gone. God tolerated that northern kingdom's constant, relentless pursuit of harlotry, worshiping other gods. God was so patient with her, so patient, wanting to forgive. In fact, in verse 12 of that same chapter in Jeremiah, it says, Go proclaim this message to the north, to my people Israel. Return, faithless Israel. God's heart was still there. He still loved them. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. God's heart was to forgive and take her back. Even after all the horrible things that she had done, He would have forgiven and taken her back if she had come back and repented. That's grace. And that's mercy. But then verse 20 says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. It never happened. It never happened. You know, it took 700 years before God divorced Israel. That's pretty patient. 700 years. That's showing grace in a marriage relationship. We all make mistakes. We all get our spouses upset at us. God is saying that even under the worst situations, my grace is sufficient. There is healing to be found. There is forgiveness that needs to be offered. There's reconciliation that needs to take place. It's possible with my love and with me involved. Maybe the husband has committed adultery or maybe the wife has committed adultery and the partner says, how long do I have to tolerate this? Well, God waited 700 years. Before he divorced Israel, there's some kind of message there, I think, isn't there? The message is that somebody's sin isn't immediately an excuse to dump your partner. If there's repentance, if there's willingness to work on that relationship, we need to do that. The classic illustration is a relationship between the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer, for goodness sake. Gomer went off and committed adultery, but worse than that, she became a prostitute, But still, Hosea went out into the slave market, and when he found her repentant, he brought her back after years of adultery. And she was actually stark naked, being sold off as a sex slave when he embraced her, took her back, and treated her as if she was a virgin. Wow. We, of course, have the amazing example of Christ and his church 
In Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. How has Christ's bride been doing over these past 2,000 years? There's been a lot of prostituting of ourselves to sin and seeking our own idols and getting our eyes off of Christ and trusting other things. But still, he had John write, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amazing. That is amazing love. So is divorce possible? Yes, for the cause of adultery, but only after a great deal of patience until it becomes evident that it is continual with no repentance in sight, and it just goes on and on. Divorce is still not our first option. It shouldn't be our second option. It shouldn't be our third option. God still hates divorce. It's not his plan. And there is healing to be found in a broken relationship. We've seen that over and over again. If the husband or the wife shows repentance and wants to work it out, we need to work that out. Consider Hosea and his patience. Consider the 700 years of God's patience with Israel. Consider Christ and his church. Listen carefully. Divorce was never an Old Testament provision for the sinning partner. Divorce was never an Old Testament provision for the sinning partner. It was an Old Testament provision for the protection of the innocent partner. That's how we need to understand that hard-hearted people were devastating marriages and godly, faithful people needed to have a way out. The reason for divorce that Jesus gives is not irreconcilable differences, or as the Pharisees put it, for any and every reason. It's not if she burns the bagels or criticizes her mother-in-law. It's because of adultery. If it's, not, it's not if he just doesn't bring as much money home as, as you're hoping for or if he doesn't show you as much affection as, as you wish he would. But it's if he commits adultery. And then they become guilty of the very sin that God hates. So we come back to Matthew 19, and this is really interesting here, because we see Jesus upholding the divine ideal. He just says, as we saw in verses 4, 5, and 6, God hasn't changed his divine ideal. One man, one woman for life. Don't you separate what God has brought together, Jesus said. Well, then what about divorce? Well, he says, not God's plan. Not God's plan, but he tolerates it because of your hard-hearted resistance to do what his law demanded that you do. And what does he demand? It comes back to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your soul. We find that in Deuteronomy, and we find that in the Gospels. I'm a firm believer that if we do that, everything else will work out as well. Because we are not giving place then to sin if we are loving God that way. Jesus says basically the same thing in Matthew 6.23, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, isn't it? 
And all these things will be given to you as well, including the healing in a marriage relationship. So the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him to say something that, that uh, could indict him. But Jesus upholds the divine ideal and he blew him away, like he always did. So much for the conversation with the Pharisees. What happened next is interesting, and we're going to close with this. He turns away from the Pharisees, and, he's, uh, and starting in verse 10, he had a conversation then with his disciples. This must have been a little bit away from the Pharisees. And the disciples said to him, Whew, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Now, why would they say that? Because they, too, were part of the culture that had been taught that marriage could be had for any and every reason. They were brought up with that. And they just heard from Jesus, along with everybody else, that if you get married, it's permanent. And to all of them, marriage had basically become kind of like you know, friends, friends with benefits. If you don't like something about them, ah, get rid of that friend, go find another friend with benefits. Easy, right? So now they've heard that. If it's not adultery, it's for life. That's scary. No matter what she does, no matter what, what, uh, how, how she acts, in their minds it would be better not even to be married. You see, they missed the whole point of the beauty of marriage that we talked about last Sunday. And Jesus picks up on their train of thought in verse 11. Listen, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. What, what words is he talking about? What phrase is he talking about? It's better not to marry. That's what the disciples brought up. And Jesus jumps on that and says the problem is not everybody can stand being single. Not everyone can accept this statement. Only those to whom it has been given. Only those who have been given the ability to be single. In fact, the Greek word for given, didomi, means to grant or to gift someone with something. Sometimes it may seem easy to say, you know, I, I'm just not going to get married. You know, I, I just don't want to deal with all this fussy stuff that I see my friends going through all the time. And besides, right now, you know, a guy or gal, they're, they're fine looking, but, you know, 30, 40 years from now, what are they going to look like? But then I think we forget, what are we going to look like in 30, 40 years? And Jesus is saying that it may be easy to say that, but it's not just not possible for you to handle it morally. Why? Because God has wired us to have a husband or wife. He's wired us to have a relationship. We are created for relationship. That's why God established this wonderful thing called marriage. Husband and wife, designed for procreation, created for partnership, made for pleasure, designed for purity, and to give provision and safety. Those are the things we talked about last week. And that's why Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 18 and chapter 19 say, you better have a wife and you better fulfill your physical desires with your wife. And the marriage bed must remain undefiled. It's a place of fulfillment and bliss and joy and intimacy. It's a wonderful thing. That's why younger widows are, are told in 1 Timothy to marry because they can't just remain single when, when they're designed to have a husband. When they're designed to have the fulfillment of physical and, rela- and emotional relationship with a husband. 
And then in verse 12 here of Matthew 19, Jesus goes on to explain just a little bit more, our last verse, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What's he saying? Seeing there are really three reasons why one should be single. One is if there's a physical defect at birth, when a man is not born with a certain part of the anatomy that would allow for procreation. Secondly, when a man has been made that way via the process of castration, this used to be done for, particularly for men who were overseeing uh, their master's harems. And then thirdly, those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's the gifting that God has given a person to accept not being married for ministry purposes. I want to come back to that in just a second. But the reason Jesus says that there are very few reasons why one shouldn't get married is because marriage is this gift that God has given to us and he has created us to have a relationship. It's a wonderful thing. He's saying that it's not good for people to be running around unmarried because it leads to to what we see in our society, in, in our world today, where it's now become norm just to sleep around. And the results are devastating. Babies are born. Babies are killed through abortion. People's lives are destroyed as they turn to pornography and all kinds of other stuff. And one of the great tragedies of modern times, yes, even in the church as a whole, is this mass of people running around without a partner trying to cope with the obvious desires that are so strong, the desires that God has put in there. And most, many, are not coping very well. And they are also falling into sin. See, in the beginning, God created man and woman and brought them together in marriage and said, it is good. It is good. If we jump to 1 Corinthians 7 just for a second here, Paul speaks to this very topic. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was single by that time. Most scholars believe that he had been married at one time. Um, Nothing is actually said one way or another in Scripture about that, but Paul had been a Pharisee. He described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisees uh, had, had to be married. Uh, he was part of the Sanhedrin, and for one to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So Paul had probably been married at some point, and it's assumed, again, no biblical proof, but it's assumed that his wife had probably died, and then he remained single after that. And he says in verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. He's talking about being single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Isn't that interesting? Singleness is a gift from God. It doesn't mean that it's better than marriage. It just means that if God wants you to be single to accomplish His will, He will give you a special gift of singleness so that you can handle it. In verse 9, He says, But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He's saying that if you can't handle being single, you're probably not gifted for that, and you better be looking and praying and asking God to show you who you're supposed to be married to. How does remaining single help in ministry? Well, the main thing 
is that you can go anywhere and do anything at a drop of a hat. You don't have to sit there and worry about, let's see, how's that going to work for my wife and my kids and accommodations and, and all this kind of thing. And there are some places in the world or certain ministries that are better suited for that. But both Paul and Jesus agree on this point. For the vast majority of people, it's best to get married. Because that's how God wired us. If God has created us for fellowship and relationships, then He will also work in our lives. He will work in our marriages to make that happen. He wants our marriages to work because He knows what a blessing they are. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of what? The gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Marriage is a gracious gift of life. It's God's plan. It's the best uh, that life has to offer. Someone said it's, it's an ice cream sundae of life. So the divine ideal stays the same, marriage for life. But God, in mercy, allows divorce in the case of adultery. And the only other allowance given in scriptures found in 1 Corinthians 7:15 and that is if either the husband or the wife are unbelievers and they decide to leave but if the unbeliever leaves Paul says let let uh, let it be so the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances god has called us to live in peace how do you know wife whether you will save your husband how do you know husband whether you will save your wife paul is saying let god take care of that Put them into God's hands. Other than that, divine ideal is upheld and marriage is for life. It's a wonderful thing. And if we've gone through a divorce, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. As we mentioned, it's not unpardonable. God can still use us. God can still bless us. What a joy that God can be. uh, What a joy that marriage can be with God's help. I'm going to ask Ben to come up and join me one more time. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're, we're going to sing, In My Life, Lord. In My Church, Lord. In Our Home, Lord. Be glorified today. Let's stand.